Welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. I'm just going to read it for you. And the words should be on the screens if you don't on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, and he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He, ha- he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So we're in our, our series called The Practice of Presence. And what we're doing is we're going through different spiritual disciplines throughout the series. And we've gone through hearing, trusting, obeying through the Word of God. We've gone through serving, uh, confession, self-reflection. And today we're talking about silence and solitude. And as we go through spiritual disciplines, I want us to think about these as not, not just instances, right? Oftentimes we view spiritual disciplines as as something we do here that fits into the rhythm of our life, but how we should view them is more as a lifestyle. Like our, our lives are fitting into God's presence, right? Like we're not trying to say, okay, when, when am I going to read my Bible? I'm going to read it over here. And when am I going to pray? I'm going to do it over here. And for a lot of us, that's what spiritual disciplines look like. It's a spattering of sporadic dots that we try to connect to make our lives look like we're following Jesus. And that's not what they're about. It's not about producing something. It's about us being with God, being in his presence, and it should be a lifestyle. So if you think about uh, those of you who work out and those of you who like to exercise, you know, you go to the gym and you do your thing. There's always things at the gym that you hate to do. There's some things that you really love to do, like the glamour muscles, right? Like if, you're, if you're a dude in here, you want to work on the biceps and the chest. If, if um, I don't know what... I don't know what ladies work on. What's that? Legs, right. Those are the glamour muscles for ladies. Um, Yeah, I'm not saying that on on here. This is recorded. (laughs) uh, But there's things that we hate, too. Like, who really loves cardio? No, put your hands down. Because those of you who love cardio... That's like all you do, right? You're joggers or whatever. You're, you're, you're runners. Uh, but there's things that you love and that you hate. And I feel like when it comes to spiritual disciplines, there's things that you're more inclined to as well and things that you're not. But if you look at it more of a li- as more of a lifestyle of health, it changes things. It changes uh, which ones you do and which ones you don't do because it's just a lifestyle of spiritually healthy living. Just like uh, some of you guys, you probably go to the gym to work out. And, and if, we just kept, if we just kept our lifestyle in the gym and that just made us healthy, well, then we're, we're missing everything else, right? Because some of you go to the gym just to work out, to eat a bag of Cheetos later, right? I, that's more of a confession. <laughs> I, that is that's something I do. Uh, work out three times a week just to eat my Cheetos. So... Uh, but what you want to do in spiritual disciplines, if you think about spiritual disciplines that way, well, I'm going to read my Bible here, and I open it up here, I read in the morning, and I'm good for the rest of the day. It doesn't work like that, guys. Just like a healthy lifestyle isn't just born out of gym, out of the gym, 
right? You have to eat healthy, right? And you actually have to eat healthy amounts of that healthy food. Right? You have to sleep well. You have to have good sleep patterns. You have to have good rest. You have to have a good work-rest balance. You have to um, know how to reduce stress in your life. All those things. So when it comes to spiritual disciplines, and we're thinking about it as a lifestyle, we need, we need to uh, think about it more than those instances where you read your Bible or where you pray or where you serve. Okay? So Colossians 3, for instance, says... Uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Guys, that doesn't just happen when we open this and close it. It says it's supposed to live in you. Like it lives in you. The psalmist says you store the word in your heart that you might not sin against God. Right? Like the word dwells in you. So it doesn't, it's not like I put this down and, well, that's my spiritual discipline for the day and I, and I walk away. No, I bring it with me in every aspect of my life. First Thessalonians says that we're supposed to pray without ceasing. I mean, how do you do that if your prayer life is five minutes in the morning, 30 seconds before you eat a meal, and maybe a sentence before you fall asleep? Like, how, how do you do pray without ceasing if that's your prayer life? Your prayer is recognizing and being aware of the presence of God in every aspect of your life. It's a continual dialogue with God. Can you imagine if you're aware of God's presence in every aspect of your life? I bet right now you're thinking, oh, I wouldn't have said that at work this past week. Like, how much would you take, how much would you take back from this past week that you said, to somebody else, or about somebody else. If you are really aware that as a follower of Jesus, the Spirit dwells in you, and the presence of God is with you wherever you go, and you're in a constant dialogue with the Lord of the universe. How much would that change your attitude? How much would that change uh, like how you interact with people? How much would that change what you do? Right? And here's, here's even more so. When you think that prayer, for most of us, we don't pray out loud too much. Our practice of prayer is through our thoughts, right? So even more so, when you realize that prayer is a constant redeeming of your thoughts, oof, how many thoughts would you take back from this past week, right? How many thoughts would you take back right now where you're like cursing me in your mind? <laughs> how, how, many, how many thoughts would you take back about somebody else? Right? When you realize you're in, you're in constant dialogue with the Lord, that's, prayer. that's how you pray without ceasing. Uh, you're, a, you're aware of the Lord's presence in every aspect of your life. You know, before you go into a meeting, God, be with me, go before me, I want to go where you go. You know, before you go to the grocery store, God, uh, I know like, this space, uh, I'm going into this space and I'm going to spend too much money probably and buy what I don't need, all those Cheetos. Please help, help me refrain from buying those Cheetos. I don't know, whatever it is, just constantly walking in step with the Spirit. Right, so when we get to silence and solitude, uh, silence and solitude aren't two separate disciplines. It's, it's a sort of hendiades. So they're, they're, both words express the same idea. So we could say silent solitude. Right? Because sometimes you can be in solitude and it's not silent. Right? So this is silence and solitude or silent solitude. Uh, because it's with you and the Lord. So we have, we have this, expression, uh, or this, this, yeah, this expression here, silence and solitude. So when we come to this and we think about how does, how does this work in our lifestyle, it, it seems a little harder because you're like, well, I can't be silent and in solitude all the time, right? Not like praying without ceasing, but the Bible doesn't command us to be. Uh, and, and a lot of you guys, if you haven't practiced silence and solitude before, um, it's going to start out with an instance. It's going to start out with uh, multiple instances of you creating a rhythm in your life to, so, so that eventually you're on the subway and you're like, hey, I can be in silence and solitude here with the Lord. You know, you're at your office at work and you take a few minutes to be in silence and solitude. So we're gonna, I'm going to walk you through what that looks like and, and my own journey with that. Before we do that, here's the bottom line for today. If you don't remember anything else from the sermon, remember this, that silence stills your soul, stills, not steals, silence stills your soul, so your struggles don't control. You like that? I made it rhyming for you so you remember, okay? Yes, let's, let's clap for that, that's good. 
Silence stills your soul so your struggles don't control, okay? We're, we're gonna go through the passage now. So the book of Psalms, what a lot of us don't realize too is the book of Psalms is one intricately, intricately woven book. Uh, and then this section of the Psalms uh, that Psalm 46 is out of is right in the middle of a group of Psalms by the sons of Korah. And, and you, you can see this by the introduction or the prelude or the, the prescript, whatever you want to call it, the foreword to each Psalm. It, it has uh, from verse, sorry, from Psalm 42 to Psalm 49, it says they're by the sons of Korah. The only exception is Psalm 43 that doesn't have a prescript. Uh, it doesn't have anything there. So, and I'll explain why in a second. So you have this group of eight psalms here that belong together, which means that, that you can trace a theme through those eight psalms. They're not meant to be interpreted on their own. So we're going to focus on Psalm 46 today, but I'm going to give you the psalms leading up to it. We'll talk about 46, and I'll give you the theme to the psalms leading out of it. Okay? So let's start with 42. I'm going to go through, through these, these quickly. But 42 is, is a popular one. If, you're, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you may be familiar with this psalm. It starts out with, uh, as a deer pants for flowing streams of water, so my soul for you, God. It also has, uh, it also has uh, the, the verse that says, deep calls to deep. So that might be familiar to you. And then it has a refrain that it repeats three times. And Psalm 42 and 43 go together because Psalm 43 is that one without the prescript. All right? I don't know if that's a word. I, I think I just made that, that up. It's forward, whatever, introduction. So they, they, go, they go together. They're like two stanzas of the same song by these guys. So three things are, or one thing is repeated three times in those two psalms. And it's this verse. It's not on the screen. I'll just read it to you. It's this, it's, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my soul and my God. And as that's repeated throughout these three psalms, you see, it cha- you see the tone changing. You can read it through the psalms. You know, the tone changes each time it's repeated, and it becomes more hopeful. The emphasis at the front end is, I'm cast down. On the back end, it's, I'm hoping in God. Right? And, and that's, the last, that's the last one that's repeated. So you have Psalm 42 and 43 here. <clears throat> and they are, they are there with, the, this person who's writing it is in exile. And they can't see God right now. Their circumstances are mounting, and their suffering is mounting, and that's all that they see. All they see right now are their circumstances and they're suffering, and they're saying, why are you cast down within me? Why, oh my soul? Like, I'm supposed to hope in God, I know. And you see, it's like the psalmist is convincing himself. He's trying to convince himself. And then at the end uh, of verse 43, again in verse 5, it's more hopeful, hoping God, for I know I shall praise you. You are my salvation. You are my God. And then it goes into 44, and 44 uh, builds on this hope, and what you notice here in 44 is the suffering hasn't stopped. There's still suffering. It's actually increased. In 44, it's a lot more detailed. And it seems like a lot more. Because in Psalm 44, he, uh, the psalmist explains all these things. And, it's, and, and it comes to this point where the psalmist says, God, I've done everything. I've been faithful. I've done what I thought I was supposed to do. And yet you've still forsaken me. And, and you have this, this idea here of, of suffering not being a consequence and a punishment of our actions and our sin, but the psalmist starts to see suffering as a necessary price of loyalty to a God that the world is against. You following me there? Do you view your suffering that way? If you're suffering for righteousness' sake, do you view it as like, God is punishing me, or do you view it as, as, no, this is a necessary price for my loyalty to my Lord Jesus, because the world hates us. The world hates our Jesus. If they knew who our Jesus was. The world loves Jesus, the good moral teacher, even though they don't live by his morals. The world loves by uh, the gentle, baby sheep petting, renaissance, blonde-haired, blue-eyed man, 
uh, they love that Jesus, but they don't really love the Jesus of the Gospels. I don't know if most of us in this room love the Jesus of the Gospels. Like, I don't know if we know the Jesus of the Gospels. Right? Like, Jesus is hard in the Gospels. He's not this, like, we think he's this compassionate gentleman, and he's both of those things. But he's fiery. He's like, this is black and white. He's like, this is the kingdom, this is not the kingdom. This is salvation, this is not salvation. You can't follow me? Bye. Like, he's not chasing after the rich young ruler guy who can't sell all this stuff and give it to the poor. He just lets them walk away. Right? He's, and we have this... But, but at the same time, we do have, a, have this understanding of Jesus where he does go after the one, right? So we need to have a more balanced perspective of Jesus, and that's what's happening in this psalm. Like, he's getting a more balanced perspective of suffering. He's saying, I want to live for God, and this is kind of a necessary part of it. So then you get to verse, uh, so, sorry, Psalm 45, and Psalm 45 is a love song, it says, in the beginning there. So if you see, if you have a physical Bible, if you see in here the, um, like I said, the foreword, the introduction, whatever, that's inspired text, right? So that is part of the scriptures, even though it's not numbered by a verse, like that's inspired text, Okay, just to, let, just to let you know. That's not added later on or anything. Uh, so that's why I say it's important for us to look at who wrote the psalm, you get the context of it, all that. So verse 45, it says, this is a, or sorry, Psalm 45, it says, this is a love song. And what it is, is it depicts this king in all his, all his uh, beauty and grandeur, and it depicts this bride all in her beauty and grandeur, and it, it talks about them coming together. And, and the king he's hinting at is... Who, you think? Well, it's Jesus. It's God. It's, it's the Messiah coming. So this is a messianic psalm. And the bride is who, you think? Well, Paul says it's the church. Like, that's us. And, and the last thing he says here is, I'll cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever. And then we get to Psalm 46. And in verse 1, the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Can you say this morning that God is your refuge, that he's your shelter, that he's, he's uh, the, play, the person you find safety in? Can you say that he is your strength, him and him alone? Or are you operating on someone else's strength? Are you operating on your strength? Are you operating on the strength of your job? Uh, is your strength, does your strength come from how much money you make? Does your strength come from which relationships you're in? Does your strength come from your identity in something other than Jesus, whether it is uh, your success, your sexuality, your family, well, you know, we can go on and on. Anything aside from Jesus is, is not going to be beneficial for us as followers of Jesus, right? So where did your strength come from this morning? Where are you finding safety? Think about it another way. What are you hiding behind? Do you hide behind the Lord Jesus and want people to see Jesus, or are you hiding behind something else? Your, your, your feelings, your, your fear of man, your fear of people and what they think about you. What are you hiding behind? He says, he starts off here, he says, God is our refuge and strength. And he didn't say my refuge. He says, remember, we just talked about the bride of Christ, the church. Our refuge and strength, the church, us. God is our refuge and strength. If he isn't your refuge and strength, I don't know what that says about you being the church. And he says he's our very present help in trouble. Therefore, when you see a therefore, you should ask what it's there for, right? Um, and, and therefore, I know that's like kind of cheesy, but it's true. Like, that's, that's what you should do. When you read the Bible, you see a therefore, you're like, why is that there? And, and, we, and it's there because he just said God is our refuge and strength. But, but we can actually go back. I can make an argument. We go back to verse, uh, Psalm 42, 43, 44, 45, and, and say that's why he's about to say what he's about to say. And he says here, therefore, we will not fear. Oh, guys. So many of us are living a life of fear. You're living in fear about what's going to happen to your job if you talk about Jesus. Who cares? He's going to provide for you. 
You live in fear about what's going to happen if you say this to your parents who are lost. Who cares? They love you. You, you, you live in fear about uh, what you're going to do for the rest of your life. You know what? Most people don't do something for the rest of their, li their life anymore. They do multiple things. I've had like 10 careers in my, <laughs> in my life. Um, and, uh, you know, you're fearing the next exam. You're fearing smaller things too. You're fearing, uh, am I ever going to get this? Am I ever going to get this relationship? Am I, am I ever going to get married? Am I ever going to get this job? Am I ever going to be successful? Am I ever going to do this? And you're fearing all these things. We live this life of fear. And he says, God is your refuge and strength. Therefore, we, the church, we will not fear. Can you say that today? Like, I won't fear. And he says, and I won't fear even if this happens. Even if the earth gives way. Even if the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, like even if all that happens, I will not fear. As that is like, that's like Armageddon right there, right? Not the really good movie from a couple of decades ago. <laughs> uh, that's like the end of the world, right? Things are crumbling. The earth is giving way. Mountains are being moved in the heart of the sea. Waters are roaring and foaming. It's tumultuous. Do your circumstances feel like that right now? Does it feel like your world is just crumbling around you, your circumstances? And I know it's hard. And I know it's, it's it, like, you're like, I can't, I, I can't be in this anymore. And all you can see is, the suffering, all you can see is the problems, all you can see is the sin, all you can see is the circumstances. And he says, we will not fear. And then he says, Selah. Can you say that? Say that, Selah. How that, do, you, do you feel how that, do you see how that made you feel? Like that, that's actually inspired in the text too. Selah, breathe. This word occurs three times in this psalm. And it is there strategically placed each time. And we'll go through it each time. But it literally means to lift up or to exalt. And it's a, it's a theological musical term that's like notation that's used when the psalmist starts to change direction. And he wants you to do something. And in that moment, he wants you to breathe. It's a pause. And he says, Selah. Like, and when you just say that, selah, you're like, ah, it's an exhale, right? And then what follows after this, it's like it doesn't even follow the first three verses. He says, selah, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. That river, whenever you read the scriptures, so Jordan Peterson says that the Bible is the original like, hyperlink text, uh, which I love, uh, because the Bible is super intertextual. So whenever you're reading the New Testament, you should always ask, what is this author reading in the Old Testament? Because it's, it's inevitably, it's going to be linked to multiple things in the Old Testament. Right? So same here. When you, when you hear there's a river, what does that make you think of? And, and if you're familiar with the scriptures, there's a few things that should make you think of, and, and I'm not going to mention all of them, but I'll mention three of them. One in the beginning, one in the middle, one at the end. And the first one is the Garden of Eden. And you'd have there a river whose headwaters in the garden, and they split it into four, and they water the entire land. Uh, like a, hard, a huge portion of it, all the way to Cush. The Euphrates goes, the Tigris goes, right? they go all around these, these lands and they water and they make it fruitful. And it makes you see, it says, uh, the, the, I, can't, I can't get into this, but in Genesis it says, um, it says, the river flowed out of Eden and it basically made the garden. Which makes you think, wait, is the garden Eden or is the garden different? And it makes you think like the garden is a much more vast piece of land than we probably have originally thought. And you think about where those rivers go. If you look on a map, you're familiar with geography, you see it's a huge portion of land. So that happens there. In, in the middle, um, Psalm 1, uh, the psalmist writes, 
that he who meditates on the law day and night is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And whatever that person does prospers. Right? That's, that's a picture of the river of life in Psalm 1. And then in Revelation 22, you have the river of life at the end of the scriptures. And just listen to these words. Like, picture it in your mind. I didn't put these on the screen because I want you to just, to just imagine this. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. That's Psalm 1. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and he will reign forever and ever. How amazing and beautiful and glorious is that? And so when you read this one word, river, here, that's what it makes me think of. Like, wow, there's a river whose streams will make the city of God, Zion, the holy city, uh, glad. And God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. She will not be shaken. This is a city that, like we were saying earlier, that will not be shaken if we are in it. Uh, or if you're in it, you will not be shaken because God is in the midst of her. And God will help her when morning dawns. You know, that, that, that particular phrase is used in Exodus chapter 14 when the Israelites cross the Red Sea and morning dawns and their deliverance is at hand. That's when the sea caves in and they're saved. Um, Isaiah 53 also talks about, uh, this is the, the passage of the suffering servant and it talks about uh, this person who raises from the dead, this messianic figure, will see the light. And it's the, uh, this prophecy of the resurrection, and they'll see the light. So then when you see the resurrection happen in, in Mark, uh, it, it uses like the break of day as terminology. That's when the women go to the tomb, and that's when the resurrection happened, right? So you have here this, this understanding of deliverance just with that one phrase there, that God will help her when the morning dawns, when the light comes, the darkness will flee. And in verse 6, he says, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. And in verse 6, the nations rage should remind you of Psalm 2, where in Psalm 2, he, uses that, he says the same thing, the nations rage, even though it's a different Hebrew word, same, uh, similar meaning there, that the nations rage, which means the nations are gathering, they assemble together, there's, there's violence, there's anger, there's commotion, the nations are in this assembly, and they're, they're fighting with each other, and he says, as those old kingdoms totter, and, and he, God, utters his voice, and the earth melts. In Genesis 1, God creates with his voice. And here, he dissolves the earth with his voice. That's the power of God. Why are you fearing anything else except our creator God? He can make anything dissolve with the power of his voice. And the nation's raging is the opposite of what we're called to do later they're coming together and they're, they're clambering. And remember, it's in silence that, that our souls are stilled. Right? Silence stills your soul, so stills your soul, so your struggles don't control. Verse 70 says, the Lord of hosts is with us. In this group of Psalms, the Lord right there is only mentioned one other time. And whenever you see the Lord like that in all caps in your Bible, it's Yahweh. It's, it's the name of the Lord from Exodus 3. It's I will be what I will be. I am who I am. And, and it's this personal name, intimate name. So whenever you see that, you should think it's very personal. He says the Lord of hosts is intimately with you. But it's not just, it's not just God and his compassion. It's the Lord of hosts. It's the Lord Almighty is how it can be translated. It's God Almighty is with us. He's not against us. The God of Jacob uh, again, an intimate, personal phrase is our fortress. And the word for fortress there is this unassailable uh, structure that has an inaccessible height. It cannot be shaken. It will not be tottered. It will always stand firm because it is God's fortress, Selah. Ah, breathe. It won't be shaken. 
breeze. Verse 80 says, come, behold the works of the Lord. And when you read that, you're like, okay, behold the works of the Lord. What do you expect there? You may expect like works of gentleness, works of love, works of mercy, works of forgiveness. And he says, and the first word he uses to describe the works of God is how he brought desolations on the earth. And you're like, ugh, that's not what I expected. But then read to verse 9. And that word for desolations is like a horrific Hebrew word. It's like very horrifying. Like it strikes fear in uh, and if you were to read that in the original language, you'd be like, ooh, like, that's, it's a horrifying word. So he says, he brought desolations on the earth. But verse 9 says, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, he burns chariots with fire. And here, you know, a lot of people have this view of God in the Old Testament as this, like, wrathful, vengeful God. Uh, steadfast love, which we'll see in, a, in, in the next psalm or two. That's repeated throughout the scriptures more than anything else in the Old Testament. That God is a God of steadfast love, of never giving up, always pursuing, always chasing us down love that cannot be broken because it's his love for us. We can't change that. We can't break it. We can't reverse it. It's his love that will always be there for us. That should be your prevailing view of the God of the Old Testament because it's the same God in the New Testament, guys. Jesus doesn't reveal to us anything different about God. He reveals, to, he reveals to us, he is the image of the invisible God. He's revealing God to us. But the God of the Old Testament is just as loving as Jesus. It's the same guy, right? Like, we, it's same mercy, same forgiveness, same judgment, same holiness. And, and a lot of times we get this feeling from the, from the Old Testament because one of the main purposes of the Old Testament for us, of the Hebrew scriptures, is to show us how sinful we are, is to show us how much wrath got poured out on the cross of Christ. So when you understand the Hebrew scriptures, when you can fully understand the Old Testament, then you will fully understand the grace, forgiveness, mercy, and love of Christ on the cross and the Father displaying that through Jesus Christ. Without understanding this other 66% of the Bible, you can't fully understand what Jesus has done for you. And so here, we have this passage, and we're like, oh, God's just like, ugh. Uh, but look at what he does here. His, his horrific acts, his desolations, are making wars cease. It's peace are shattering the bow. He's taking the weapons of war and violence and anger and rage that the nations have, and he's saying, no more. No more of this. I'm shattering the spear. I'm bringing the bow. I'm burning your vehicles of war. And I want to give you justice. And I want to give you mercy. And I want to give you goodness. And I want to give you forgiveness. And I want to give you praise. Those are your weapons, right? It's no longer man against man. Like, I want to give you weapons that produce peace. And it's called a desolation because that's what it is to the world. It shouldn't be a desolation to us. We're the church. We should be like, yes, no more weapons of violence. Peace. Jesus is the peacemaker, right? But to the world, they say, no, that's all we know. That's all we have. That's history. It's wars. History is from war to war to war to war, right? And God is changing history. He says, no longer. I'm going to shatter those things. And so that word desolation is actually, yeah, God is actually being loving, merciful, peaceful, good, faithful, all those things that we see, that we think we see more clearly in the New Testament. It's all here, right? And then he says, be still. And that word for still is, is uh, just let go. Just release. It has this connotation of helplessness. Like realize that you are helpless, that you can't do this on your own, that you weren't made to do it on your own. And he says, just be still and know that I'm God. Silence will steal your soul so that your struggles don't control. 
right? Be still. Know that I'm God. I, God, will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And he says, just be still and know that I'm God. This is silent solitude. This is you and Jesus. Uh, when, or, or this week, we, for the holiday, we took the girls to a really cool water thing. Um, and hey, just to let you know, when I, tell these, when I tell these stories, it's not licensed for you to go make fun of my girls. Uh, <laughs> this stays here. <laughs> uh, so we went to this big water thing, and it was like, it's in Lake Ontario, it's all these huge inflatables, you climb on like things, you can jump off this huge slide, you go in the water, there's a huge blob, where some person is on the end, and you, you jump on one end, and I did that to Missy, and she went up, and she landed right on her face. So, you can ask her about that later. Like, the guy up there was like, is she okay? <laughs> She's okay, yeah. <laughs> but like, she let him, yeah, anyways. So, we just got there with the girls, and my girls are seven and nine, and they're, they're still learning how to swim. They're okay swimmers. This place, this place was, yeah, it was just really fun, really cool, but we first get there, it's like a little obstacle-type course that you have to get across to get to the bigger floats. So we get there, and, and they wanted me to go first, so I go first, Reagan's going, and I hear a splash, and Emerson had fallen into like this diamond, the small diamond shape, smaller than this rug, diamond-shaped area where she's surrounded by inflatables. And then she's in this water, and I hear her yell. And she has a life vest on, right? And I hear her, I hear her yell, and, and, uh, and she's like panicking, right? Like, she, <laughs> she's, <laughs> sorry, I was gonna make a, comment about someone else's panicking moment, but I won't do that. So she's, she's like, uh, see, I cut myself, it's pretty good, right? She's, she's like panicking, and I can see her arms flailing, and I, and I hear her cry out, and she says, help, daddy. And I've never heard her say that before. Um, like, my heart broke in that moment, and I, I'm, on the, <laughs> I'm on the structure, so I rush over there, and she's going, like, it's like she's drowning, right? But she has a life vest on. And she's going crazy. And I say, Emerson, and everything in me wants to pull her right out of there. But I don't. And I say, Emerson, you have to calm down. Like, I'm right here. And she can't really see me, because the thing's like, she's not looking at me, but the things are higher, too. And I'm right there. And she's like, ah! And, and I was like, Emerson, calm down. I'm right here. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. I will rescue you. But you have to calm down. It's like, you can do this. You, you can stay afloat. And took a few seconds, but she calms down and sees me. She's fine. And she could have stayed in there after that. And I pull her out. And that's what the picture is that we have here, that the psalmist is giving us. That for most of us in our circumstances, we don't selah, we don't breathe, we don't lift up our eyes to God. We just panic, and we go crazy. We think we're drowning, we're in like two feet of water, right? We're like, ah, and, and we're drowning, and we can't even see God, because we're not looking for him and we think we're going to die, and we think the world is over, and the earth is melting away, and everything's going away, and the mountain has been thrown in the heart of the sea, and we're like, God, where are you? But we're not even looking for him. And the whole time, he's right there saying, do not fear. I'm with you. I will not let you drown. I'm right here with you, and I will rescue you. But here's the thing. God doesn't always immediately or he doesn't necessarily take us out of our circumstances. You know, I didn't take Emerson out of there. So what changed for her? Her circumstances were still the same. What changed was her perspective of her circumstances. And she finally recognized that I was there, and I was going to rescue her, and that nothing bad was going to happen to her. And so a lot of times we're praying, we want God to take us out of our circumstances, and he's like, no. Just stay there. 
you need to learn that you have the ability to stay there. And I'm here with you. And, and guys, God's presence changes everything. And silence and, and solitude does that for us. It helps us recognize God's presence. Emerson had to take a breath, calm down, and recognize that I was there with her. And then she was fine. And it was all good. And if you don't have silence and solitude in your life, that's really hard to do, especially in a city like ours, where it's always go, 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 busy, busy, busy. Guys, I wake up to construction, sirens, horns, traffic every morning. And most of you guys do too, right? Like, that's just the reality of our city. It's always a buzz. There's always white noise. You need silence and solitude in your life. Because one, it's a spiritual discipline. It'll get you closer to God. And two, and two your circumstances, what, what Psalm 46 doesn't do is it doesn't diminish your circumstances. Guys, I get you guys, a lot of you guys have horrible circumstances. A lot of, a lot of us are dealing with different things, right? And I, I get that. What Psalm 46 does, it doesn't dismiss them. It doesn't say, hey, your circumstances are crap. Stop worrying about it. It says, focus on God. Allow him to change your perspective. Remember that he's with you. Do not fear. He's with you. His presence is there. And he finishes by saying, the Lord of hosts is with us. Yahweh, Almighty, the God of Jacob, he is our fortress. And then 47, 48, and 49 close with celebration. 47, 48 are all celebratory. You have this selah at the end of verse 11. And then it says, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. And that continues through, through Psalm 48. And then 49 talks about wisdom and understanding. And, it's, it's, and it ends with saying, hey, it's through this that you will be wise and understanding and that you will not perish. He says in verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like beasts that perish. But if you have understanding, he says in verse 3, if the meditation, he says, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding, then you will not perish. So silence and solitude have become, I didn't practice it until I moved here. I didn't really know too much about it. No one taught me the spiritual discipline uh, when I became a follower of Jesus. Even though Jesus does it all the time, right? I, I missed that. And, and so I started practicing it probably five, six years ago. And, and guys, if you know me, you know I'm not good with silence or solitude. I just ask Missy, like, I do not like to be alone. I have uh, tried to be alone, done like a day retreat on my own. And I lasted like an hour and a half, and then I just started meeting people. Like, I just couldn't, like, I was skiing, and I just started hanging out with this older lady, like in her 60s, 70s, on the ski slopes. And then she left me. She was like, why, like, why does he keep on following me? Like, I would ride up the ski lift with her, and we would talk, and then, um, and I was like, I'm done with this. I can't, I can't do this anymore. Uh, so in the morning when I, when, I, um, when I get up, I started practicing it. And I had to start out with just 30 seconds of me just being silent. 30 seconds, like that's not long. For me, it felt like an eternity. And then I had to build a rhythm of that. So now, like I said, I can practice it pretty much anywhere. I can just, just be in silence and solit in silent solitude with the Lord. So I'm going to give you five precepts really quickly uh, to help you start to practice this in your life if you want to use this. So one, remember you have the mind of Christ. This is from 1 Corinthians 2. So a lot of you guys are like, oh, I can't. My mind is like always racing, and everyone has that problem, guys. Uh, your mind is always racing. You can't shut it off. Remember, you have the mind of Christ, okay? So don't worry about your mind racing. Let God speak to you through your mind, okay? This leads us to number two. Take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, because then you say, well, how do I know that it's the mind of Christ and not my fleshly, sinful mind? You know. <laughs> if I have to tell you what's right and wrong, then, yeah, like, you know. The Spirit of God is in you if you're a follower of Jesus. You know the difference between right and wrong, okay? So the wrong thoughts, take those captive to obey Christ. The right thoughts, take them captive to obey Christ, right? All things to obey Christ. You have the mind of Christ. Sit in that and, and let that truth... Um, let that truth 
lead you into silence and solitude. Number three, give your silence some structure. I had to do this. Uh, this is 1 Samuel 3. I preached on it a few weeks ago. Uh, something I say before I begin silence and solitude, and I, this is the first thought I have every morning when I wake up. Um, most times I'm still like half asleep groggy waking up, and I say it still to kind of get me up. And it's, speak, Lord, your servant hears. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 3, where Eli tells him to say this, tells Samuel to say this to, to the Lord. And so I start with that. I say, speak, Lord, your servant hears, and then I sit there. But this leads into number four. This isn't necessarily about hearing. It's about experiencing. Okay, so I say that, but I'm not saying, God, speak to me on this. Am I, am I supposed to do this today? Whatever it is. Am I, where am I supposed to? I just, it's not about hearing from God in those moments for me. It's just about being with God. It's about being in his presence. It's about knowing that he's with me. Sometimes I just picture Jesus sitting next to me. Sometimes I picture myself before the throne of God. Like, it's just me sitting in silence. And, and guys, it doesn't have to mean your mind has to be just like black and nothingness, right? Just let your mind go. It's fine. Fill it. You can fill it. Like, that's what I try. I fill it with scripture, Right? I meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. Like that's, I take that into this practice too. Give it some structure. It's not necessarily about hearing, but it's experiencing. Number five, trust that God will honor your obedient attempts. God will honor it as you step forward. There's supposed to be two scripture references there. One is uh, Jeremiah 29. This is, you will seek the Lord and he will be found. So trust that God will honor your obedient attempts. Number two, oh, there it is, is James 4. This is, this is saying, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, right? Just draw near to God, be in his presence, and he will draw near to you. And trust that that will happen. You know, Psalm 46, and, and here's the thing. Remember that bottom line. Put that, put that bottom line back up there. Silence stills your soul so your struggles don't control you need this in your life to just be in God's presence so you're not controlled by your circumstances any longer. Right? You don't need your struggles telling you how to feel. You don't need the enemy telling you uh, what to do. You want the Lord doing that. And in Psalm 46, it reminds me of two things Jesus, Jesus says when he's here uh, in his ministry on the earth. In Psalm 46, it says that the first thing is, is the, though, the, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. And Jesus says to the disciples, he has, we see this practice in Jesus' life all the time where he retreats from the crowds, he goes to be with the Father, and he hears something from the Father, and he comes back with direction. Here's the time where he retreats from the crowds, he comes back, he, he, they're in Jerusalem, he curses his fig tree, which... I don't understand that passage. <laughs> and then, uh, but, but the disciples are like marveling. He's like, What's go? What, what just happened? Uh, and, and Jesus says to them in Matthew 21, he says, he says uh, guys, if you just had some faith and didn't doubt, you could do anything. Uh, you could say to that mountain, be thrown into the sea. And the psalmist here, like I said, isn't, dismissing your circumstances, but it's saying even when they feel so impossible, we worship the God of the impossible. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, just have faith in the God of the possible and the impossible, right? That's what that phrase means there. Don't go out here and start, start rebuking mountains into the sea. Like, then you'll be like, eh. Now, it's saying with God and faith, you can pray, Jesus says, and it will be done, right? If we just had that faith. And the second thing he says in 46, the psalmist says in 46 here is, is uh, be still and know that I am God. What does that remind you of with Jesus? Where he says, peace be still. You have this, you have this, Jesus has retreated from the crowds. He's on the Sea of Galilee at night with his disciples. He's asleep in the boat, that isn't silent solitude, by the way. That's just sleep. <laughs> Don't confuse those. But Jesus needs sleep, right? He is, he's asleep in the bowl. And <laughs> yeah, you're like, I, I practice silent solitude eight hours a night. Uh, he's, he's asleep in the bowl. 
and there's a storm that comes on the sea, and the disciples are freaking out, right? They're panicking, and Jesus, and they wake Jesus up, and they say, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care that we're perishing? You feel like that sometimes, right? You're like, Jesus, don't you care that I'm going through all of this? And for other people, if you have a pastor's heart, a shepherding heart, you feel that for other people, you're like, God, don't you care that this person is going through this? And Jesus stands up, he rebukes the wind, and then he says to the sea, peace, be still. And it says in the scriptures there that everything calms down. Like everything is calm in that moment, and the disciples are like fearful, right? It says they feared him at that moment, right? Like what, what we were talking about in Psalm 46, fear God. They're like, who is this that even speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey him? It's the creator of everything. It's the one who can make the earth melt away. This is our Jesus, guys. This is who we trust. And if you're not a follower of Jesus in here this morning, know that that can be true for you in Christ Jesus. And for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, for those of you who say, I have the Spirit of God, like stop acting like you live with the Spirit of the world and walk without fear. Walk as a child of light. Walk in the faith of God and walk with the Spirit because you have the mind of Christ. You can take every thought captive to obey Christ. You can... Uh, Pray and it will be done. Like those are things that Jesus says to us. And silence and solitude help get you there because they still your soul so that your struggles don't control. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, it is it's just beautiful. It is glorious. I love it. And I pray that... Um, you just do something with it. Your word does not return void. So transform us. Give us new perspectives today. As a church, I pray that we would not fear this world. That we would know that you are our fortress and our strength, our refuge, our ever-present help, our deliverer, our everything, that our life is hidden in you, Jesus. So use us now for your glory. We ask in your name. Amen. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.